You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Welcome to the afternoon panel, which is an interview with Will Pomerantz, author of Law and the Russian State. We'll be talking about his book. I'm going to mention that this book is available for purchase. It's published by Bloomsbury, uh, 2018. I should also tell you about our author. I'll read from the back of the book. William Pomerantz is the deputy director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute in Washington, DC. He's a frequent commentator on current developments in Russia, providing analysis for CNN, NBC, NPR, Reuters, Bloomberg, and other media outlets. He is not a traditional academic. He is a historian and was a practicing attorney. Yes. Uh, but he also publishes a lot, especially on topics relating to the law in Russia. The way uh, I plan to do this is I'll start off um, asking him to give a brief uh, overview of how he came to do this project and maybe a brief synopsis of the book. I'll ask him some questions uh, for maybe about half the length of the panel, and then uh, we'll open the floor for questions. Welcome, Will. I'm glad to be back here at the University of Washington. If you wouldn't mind, can you start off giving us a little intellectual biography about what led you to write this book, um, and maybe talk about a few of the highlights in it. Well, I'll, I'll try to be brief, because it, is, it did take a lifetime to come up with this book. Um, I, I started out, uh, I guess I'll start when I began going to graduate school. Um, I was pursuing a PhD in Russian history at the University of London, and like most graduate students, struggling to find a topic. And I was initially going to do a dissertation on Vieki, landmarks, a solid intellectual history of, in Tsarist Russia about a, a collected volume of essays of members of the Russian intelligentsia uh, kind of complaining about everything after the 1905 revolution. Uh, I read the book a few more times, and I decided uh, that I didn't want to deal with this book ever again. Uh, not a good idea for a dissertation. But I was fascinated by a particular essay in this book. And it was an essay written by Bogdan Kistikovsky, a Ukrainian legal philosopher. And it was an analysis on the Russian legal system and a discussion of the intelligentsia's attitude towards law, which not surprisingly he found rather absent. So I decided that um, it would be very interesting to study the Russian legal system. And ultimately, I came up with the topic of the Russian advocator, the, the practicing defense attorneys in Tsarist Russia. And I wrote a dissertation and, uh, on the history and development of the Russian advocator. Uh, I then came back to the United States. I did that in London. And I discovered that uh, that wasn't as remunerative or as uh, 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 didn't lead to as many opportunities as I would hope. So I eventually got a job at the National Endowment for Democracy and studied law at night. So I became uh, a lawyer after five years of uh, studying at American University. And then I had an opportunity to practice law in Moscow. It was at the end of the 1990s. And it was still a time when there weren't a lot of Western-trained Russian lawyers. 
So there was a role for American expats and foreign expats uh, to practice law, uh, if only to hold the hands of foreign investors trying to come and understand the Russian legal system. So as my wife often jokes, I'm the, uh, one of the few people who actually became the dissertation topic. And <laughs> I practiced law in Moscow for about two years. Uh, and then practiced law in DC, and then moved back to the Kennan Institute. And I've been doing rule of law issues at the Kennan Institute for the last 10 years, uh, focusing both on Russian legal history and on current uh, day commercial and constitutional law. And then one day I got an email asking what I want, would I want to write a book on the history of Russian law. And I, it was a great opportunity to combine my various levels of expertise. Um, I was lucky enough to kind of bring a historical perspective and a contemporary perspective to the book. And so uh, a lot of Saturdays and Sundays later, um, I've uh, managed to, to finish the book. And it really, the broad goal is to kind of take the question of law and Russia's legal development out of the periphery, because historians always cite laws in various monographs and so forth, but to really take it out of the periphery and make it the central component of the historical narrative. And I think by doing so, I'm able to illuminate certain continuities within Russian law. Okay, so that, that's a good transition to um, my first question. So having read through the book, uh, it's safe to say that legal development in Russia has been complicated, uh, proceeding in fits and starts, with probably more steps backward than forward, depending on the period. Um, thinking about the country as I do as a social scientist, there are a lot of things that make Russia complicated in general. The vast territory, the fact that it's been a multi-ethnic empire for most of its history, um, certain traditions of, of governance and ideas about power. Can you talk about some of these big factors and how you see them influencing the development of law or, or lack thereof? Well, what I try to do in the book is look at the continuities of what is the common feature, or what runs through, which are, what are now three distinct eras in Russian history, the Imperial Soviet and post-Soviet. And I've, I argue in the book that the, the overlapping thing is the notion of the state, that you can put any adjective that you want in front of the state, uh, imperial, democratic, uh, socialist, uh, totalitarian. Pick your adjective. It's the state that is always the constant in the whole equation. So I decided that um, I wanted to focus on the notion of the state. Because I think law serves the state, but doesn't necessarily act as an independent variable outside of the state. And so what, there are all these complicated attributes that you've mentioned, including it's a multi-ethnic state, and power, et cetera, et cetera. So in reading, um, not just current kind of analysis of, of Russian law, but going back into Russian history, I came to the conclusion that the, the best adjective to, quanta, to qualify the state is this notion of the unified state. And the unified state goes back to czarist legal philosophy. And it essentially means that there is only one sovereign. And that as long as a region accepts the notion of one sovereign, the Russian state can actually accept a whole variety of arrangements, governing arrangements, and indeed allow for different legal systems to operate within 
the context of a unified state. So the unified state doesn't necessarily mean that there's one law, because for all of Tsarist Russia, there is not one law. It's a pluralistic legal system with whole different series of laws, whether they be national in Poland or in Finland, or whether they be customary amongst peasants and so forth. Um, you, th there is this pluralism within Russian law. And it's not as if there's the notion of the unified state means that everyone agrees, or there's kind of a monolithic state. There's always bureaucratic debates within it. The notion of the unified states uh, means that there's simply one sovereign. And every region or nation that is incorporated into the state must recognize this notion of a single sovereign. And once they do, like any other empire, there's lots of flexibility as to how the center deals with these different, this multinational diverse uh, uh, makeup. So it, it is complicated, but I think if you approach it on that line, that the state is not simply a system of governance, it's not just simply the bureaucracy, but it is the institution that unites this huge multi-ethnic continental power, um, then you can begin to understand some of the contradictions within its legal policies. When you compare Russia to <clears throat> European states, say the 19th century, as they both developed what the state does and developed a body of law, what prevented Russia from undertaking the same developmental evolution? Russia was also trying to modernize desperately at times throughout the 19th century. And in, when we look at the development of Europe, we see law as an integral part of its ability to do that in order to harness societal forces and to harness the economy in service of, of the country as a whole. What prevented Russia from doing that? Or, may, or was it able to modernize without using law or instituting a, a system of rule of law that aided Europe in its economic development? Russia is not unlike other empires. Other empires did not require a single law. So when the British Empire expanded abroad, it didn't necessarily assume or mean that there were going to be equal rights throughout the British Empire, far from it. What the British Empire promised as it expanded globally was that its system of commercial law and property rights would follow it around the world. And that was what made the British Empire so strong. Not that it brought the common law necessarily, although it did. Not that it required equal rights because it did not. Um, but because it, it, it brought certainty in terms of property rights and commercial law in, in the empire. So the problem for the Russian empire, and there are other issues, but I'll focus on this question of civil law. It is that Russia doesn't have a system of civil law to export. Uh, so it exports really kind of military and administrative procedures. But it doesn't have a system of civil law, commercial law, that can unite a, a huge country. And, and it's very difficult. Um, I don't know if anyone could have united it, even if they had that strong system. So what Russia does, essentially, is that it allows different regions to maintain their notions of civil law. So Poland, for example, while incorporated into the Russian Empire, 
is still governed by the Napoleonic Code uh, throughout its, uh, its existence within the Russian Empire. Uh, Finland is governed by uh, the Swedish Code of 1734. The Baltic states retain their notion also of civil law. So you, so, so you, so, and the Russian Empire and, and, and Russia doesn't necessarily feel it has a body of law that it can export to these regions that is better and that can produce greater wealth and modernize. So it's really not until the, the reforms of Nicholas I, who creates a digest of civil law and a, a, a commercial law, and the judicial reforms of 1864, with create judicial institutions, um, that Russia has a system of law that it can begin to export. And it does so at the end of the imperial era uh, through, the, through Russification. Russification, in many ways, is an attempt to take Russian legal procedures and begin to enforce them in the far extremities of the empire. And so in the Baltic states, the Baltic states are, are attached to the St. Petersburg Judicial District. And also they have to submit complaints in Russia. Same is true in Poland. Um, it, 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 this process of Russification doesn't, it, it, it is not over by the time of 1917. But there is this attempt to modernize Russian law and to create a single system of civil law. And an effort to be, uh, take the kind of extremes of the empire and to incorporate them into a system of civil law. That, that I think, so, so to answer your question, Russia's not different from other empires. It, it, its process of modernizing is occurring much later. But, and, and the system of law up until 1914 does have evolutionary potential to expand even further. Uh, the great Russian experiment is cut short, obviously, in 1917. So, uh, probably should have actually uh, prefaced the, a couple of previous questions by noting that you do distinguish between law at various levels, right? So you mm -hmm. have law governing the people in power, things like constitutionalism, checks and balances. Then you have law that, that deals with individual subjects or citizens, criminal law and, and civil law. And these are all kind of working at different speeds and, mm -hmm. and, and tempos. Um, so once there is an established body of, of commercial law, do you see that taking root in society? Do you see that leading to the kinds of advances in, in property rights that might lead to the kind of economic growth that you see in, in, in say, um, Western or Eastern Europe, even in Russia proper? Yes, there, there are advancements in civil law, property rights, and even commercial law up until 1917. Um, I would have to say that Russian civil law and commercial law, I've talked about some of the weaknesses. It starts from a re relatively low legislative base. They, they are imperfect pieces of legislation. And good lawyers, of course, obviously complain at great length at, at the imperfections of the Russian law codes and commercial codes. Nevertheless, what Russia experienced significant economic expansion leading up to uh, 1914. And it is in part, you can't really quantify it, but it is in part because it has introduced new civil law procedures that allows everyday commercial disputes to be resolved by independent judges in commercial courts without state interference. 
Now, there are lots of caveats there, and there are plenty of lawyers who complain about state interference as well. And they don't necessarily like to go against the government because they're pretty sure they're going to lose. <coughs> but you do have a body of law where the state is not a party, but is, serves as arbitrator. You have genuine adversarial proceedings. Uh, you have an active defense bar, an independent judiciary. And this is at least seen as an advancement in Russian civil law procedures. Um, they have a new civil code that was drafted in 1913 that is ready to go. Uh, but events intervene, and it's not adopted. And in fact, the, uh, the Bolsheviks adopted, they, they amended a little bit, but primarily the 1922 civil code that the Bolsheviks introduced at the beginning of NEP uh, is largely based on the 1913 Tsarist civil code that was being discussed within the bureaucracy. So Russia does have expanding property rights. Russia, I mean, property rights, strong property rights exist in Russia from Catherine the Great onwards, essentially. Because Catherine the Great not only gives property uh, to, the, uh, to the gentry, to the nobility, she not only gives them the surface rights, she gives them the subsoil rights as well. And for the next 150 years, they're trying to figure out, the, the Tsarist bureaucracy is trying to figure out how to get access to these subsoil rights that Catherine the Great has very generously given to the nobility. Um, there, 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 are, there are weaknesses in all these bodies of law. One shouldn't think that the Tsarist legal system is some sort of panacea and just waiting, waiting to bloom uh, at some future date. That's not the case. But I think there were strong inroads in the last 50 years that created more secure property rights, more secure procedures, and still had potential for growth. Another thing you do in the book, besides talking about the, de the development of law, is you talk about lawyers. I know it's a topic that's near and dear to you. Uh, can you talk about the development of lawyers in Russia? Well, there's the famous quote from Peter the Great when he goes abroad for the first time. And he sees some barristers wearing wigs in, in London. And he, he asks them who they are. And, uh, and they say they're lawyers. And he says, I only have two lawyers in my empire. And when I got home, I'm, I'm sure to execute one of them. So uh, not really a ringing endorsement for the legal profession. Um, and <coughs> It's so, so there aren't, there isn't a, a law faculty in the, essentially in the uh, 18th century training lawyers. Uh, judges are primarily local military officers and governors. There's no separation between administration and judicial functions uh, for the most part. Um, and there aren't trained lawyers to change the system. And that only changes in 1835 with Nicholas I and the university statute, when they start training lawyers both in law faculties and in kind of advanced secondary schools, the School of Jurisprudence, which Richard Wortman writes about in his uh, book on development of Russian legal consciousness. So all of a sudden, they're training lots of lawyers. And lo and behold, 30 years later, um, they transformed the Russian legal system. So. At that point, you do then have trained lawyers and a, a vibrant legal community. You have law societies that are debating civil and criminal legislation. And you have, uh, after the judicial reforms of 1864, you have 
uh, an independent judiciary. You have a prosecutor's office that is, all, is focused much more on actually representing the state in court as opposed to supervising the general notion of practice. And you have uh, the, the group that is near and dear to me, the Russian legal profession, the bar, um, that is engaged both in the development of civil law, but is also very famous for its uh, activities and representations in the great political trials of the Tsar system. And the advocator really is representing an alternative idea of what Russian law should be. It, 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 it objects to the notion of autocratic law, of the autocratic state, of the state not being subject to its own laws. Uh, it advocates for a more universal application of law, as opposed to the pluralistic application of law that existed in Tsarist Russia. And, and most importantly, it is the institution that is most uh, aggressive uh, and has a platform to stand up for civil rights and civil liberties in Russia. And so it really is a unique institution. Um, and you're not biased at all? No, because, because I, mean, I mean, if you go into a Russian bookstore today and you kind of meander around the legal section, I promise you, you will find the collected speeches of these 19th century and early 20th century Russian lawyers. It, it is the standard by which Russia still measures law today. There was a book uh, that was just uh, co-authored by uh, Shak Rai, who was one of the major authors of the 1993 Constitution, where he compares different lawyers. Um, but again, he's focusing on late 19th, early 20th century legal practitioners and scholars as being the golden age of Russian law. And so there is kind of uh, a recognition that there was something unique here, something to build upon. Um, and uh, it's one of the first institutions the Bolsheviks shut down. One should add that Lenin himself was also a practicing lawyer. He was a, uh, he graduated from, I think, uh, St. Petersburg Law Faculty and served as a, uh, a junior barrister, essentially, a lawyer in training for a couple of years. Uh, he wasn't a very good one. And then he decided he would devote his attention to something else. So lawyers may be good, but they're no, oh, no perfect defense against tyranny. Lenin, Lenin hated lawyers. And, and he, he lectured his fellow party members about not trusting any of the famous political defenders if they, uh, if they were looking for legal advice. Can you talk a little bit about this institution called the procuracy for people who've spent time in the post-Soviet world, you often hear about the prosecutor a lot, Procuratura. Uh, it's pretty notorious. And it's not just <laughs> the prosecutor's office. It's had a lot wider functions uh, and more sinister ones um, going, going way back. So can you talk a little bit about the development of that institution and then um, follow it through the Soviet into, into the post-Soviet era? Okay. Well, the Procuracy was created by Peter the Great in 1722. So for those of you who are marking your calendar, yes, 2022 will be the 300th anniversary of the, of the birth of the prosecutor's office. And, and, I'm, sure, and I'm sure that they will be wearing their best uniforms uh, when they come to, um, to, come to celebrate that magnificent day. But the Procuracy um, is yet another institution named by Peter, but essentially misnamed, because they didn't prosecute at all in the sense they didn't, they didn't represent the state in court and kind of advocate for and, 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 and try criminal cases. 
the procracy was initially created uh, to supervise. Uh, it was to supervise the bureaucracy, to supervise the ruling Senate, and to tell Peter the Great when they were misbehaving. And so it was created as an administrative institution. And again, its crucial responsibility was supervision, not Zor. And again, this concept of the Zor is one that lasts all to the, to the present day. But he created the procracy, Peter the Great did. Um, it was kind of elevated during Catherine the Great's reign so that the prosecutor became essentially a prime minister. It was that important. And then it was downgraded by Alexander I, where he subsumed it into the Ministry of Justice and transformed by the reforms of Alexander II when prosecutors were procurators were turned into prosecutors. And they were primarily responsible for representing the state in court. Um, it had much fewer supervisory responsibilities. It had virtually no supervisory powers in civil matters. Um, it was a politicized institution, obviously, but it, it had a more specific legal function. Um, the procracy is abolished initially by Peter, by, by, by the Bolsheviks, and then is brought back by Lenin, and it's really in the 1930s when Andrei Vyshinsky becomes the procurator general that it essentially assumes the responsibilities that had existed for during Peter the Great's time. That it's not simply a prosecutorial, prosecutorial arm of the state. It has broad general supervisory functions. And what happens in the Soviet period is that it's essentially responsible for supervising the entire bureaucracy. It's responsible for supervising um, the um, institutions of government, uh, factories, collective farms. There isn't a single thing that the bureaucracy isn't engaged in, in supervising during the, uh, so at the end of the Soviet period. It also is the institution, if you have a complaint about the bureaucracy, that individual citizens would appeal to because you had a much better chance of trying to resolve the dispute by appealing to the prosecutor than the non-existent chance of going to court. Hmm. So it performed this huge supervisory function and was called by some essentially a fourth branch of government that reported only to the state and wasn't part of the government at all. Come 1993, 1991-93 and the collapse of the Soviet Union, there is an attempt to downgrade the prosecutor's office. And again, to narrow its function, to only make it responsible for prosecuting cases. And the 1993 Constitution contains a very cursory reference to the prosecutor's office. Um, and yet, very quickly, through the legislative process, the prosecutor's office uh, received and got uh, returned its broad supervisory powers. Again, to, to supervise the implementation of the Constitution, to supervise institutions of government, um, and to essentially serve uh, the same role, with some important caveats, uh, the same role as it did in the Soviet Union. So the caveats would mean, would, would include one, the procracy is no longer responsible for supervising the judiciary. Uh, the judiciary now is independent of the prosecutor's office. And the second is that in 2007, uh, Putin separated the procracy from the, the investigation, criminal investigation. 
So you now have an investigative, investigative committee, which is independent of the proxy, that investigates major crimes and bring the indictment, brings the indictment. The prosecutor today is always, there's plenty of examples where the proxy doesn't want to bring the case, and they have these very public disputes as to whether a criminal charge is warranted in a particular instance. But the bottom line is, for these 300 years, the proxy has retained this notion of supervision. It plays an outsized role in the, in the legal system. Um, and in many ways is still the, is the most powerful legal institution in Russia. So that when there's focus on reforming the judiciary, especially, for example, in the criminal process, um, in many ways that's, that, that's misplaced. Because by the time in Russia today, because at the time the case gets to the judge uh, in Russia today, there's a 99.6% chance that they're going to be convicted. And so, in fact, the bringing of criminal charges is, in fact, the more important role. Um, and that is still led by the bureaucracy, although we have <coughs> issues with the investigative branch. I can also talk more about how the prosecutor's power has expanded over the last, um, the last 10 years and has moved into new areas, such as anti-corruption, um, human rights, et cetera. They've tried to rebrand themselves and make themselves even more important. But always, when, when Putin wants something done, invariably it's the prosecutor's office that is going to enforce it. And I'll give two examples of that. One, they just passed a recent law about uh, disrespect, showing uh, evidence of disrespect to the state. How are those charges brought? They're brought by the prosecutor. Um, the second example is the um, is the foreign agents law. When the foreign agents law was passed, um, it, 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 it essentially focused on the question of political activity in Russia and, and how non-government organizations could receive funding for such political activity. But um, no one defined political activity. And at first, the natural institution that would define it was the Ministry of Justice because it supervises the advocatora. Uh, but it did, want to, uh, it did want to identify what political activity was. So essentially what happened was it was the prosecutor's office that began taking people to court, of course, defining what political activity was. And by the time it appeared to, before a judge, the judge really didn't have any discretion to turn it down. So this seems like a clear example of uh, a Soviet legacy whose consequences we still see today. Um, can you talk a little bit um, about the transition uh, from the end of the Soviet period into the Yeltsin era, um, and to what extent officials who were trying to reform the system tried to escape uh, Soviet legal legacies, uh, to what extent, if they tried, they were able to, and how much continuity we see just because uh, right, it, the state is, is a juggernaut and it's, it's simply hard to reform and it's simply easier to continue existing practices. There, there were a lot of efforts to change the legal system. So there's a, this conception of judicial reform that's drafted in 1992 and 1993. And in addition, to, um, in addition to limiting the power of the prosecutor's office, it wants to increase judicial independence. It wants to increase the independence of the legal profession, the advocatora. 
It wants to introduce jury trials. It wants to decrease the notion of supervision. It has very liberal objectives. And at first, and one can see how they were incorporated into the 1993 Constitution. Because the 1993 Constitution um, contains lots of these, these ideas. It has a, a very detailed section on civil liberties. It returns jury trials. Uh, it goes out of the way not to give the prosecutor supervisory power in the Constitution. Um, it has discussion ideas of federalism, democracy, rule of law. All these ideas get into the Constitution. Um, what I argue is there are also elements of continuity within this Constitution. Um, and it, it, I'm, I've given long talks about it, so I'll try to synthesize that as, as easily as I can. But there's the notion of the unified state, that state integrity is the ultimate, is the most important responsibility. There is notions of a unified system of state power, uh, which is the clause in the Constitution that supported the decision in 2004 to stop the election of governors. There is um, the notion of state power. I haven't talked about state power yet, but state power, Gostodoshny's lost, is, is a critical concept because in the Tsars and the Soviet period, it really means kind of absolute power, dominance, subordination, and violence. I mean, it, it, is what, it is the autocratic powers that allows the Tsar to govern. And state power trickles into Soviet uh, discussions as well. Uh, there are organs of state power in the 1990, 1936 and 1977 constitutions. Um, but at the heart of this kind of continuity, uh, of this notion of state power, is in the 1993 constitution. And it focuses on Article 10, which says that state power will be divided between executive, executive, legislative, and judicial power, and that all these branches will be autonomous. Um, and so you look at that provision, and you say, terrific. Here is a, finally a notion of separation of powers. And this is how it's been translated into Russian law. Uh, in the Russian Constitution. But the problem is that Westerners focus on the second half of that clause, an, an autonomous legislature, executive, and judicial branch. They don't focus on what is state power, because state power has a long history in Russia, as I said. And it is defined as this kind of centralized, absolute dominant power. Um, and so you ask yourself, who exercises state power under the Russian Constitution? And in Article 11, the first person who exercises state power under the Russian Constitution is the president. I knew it. Yes. And so that is the element of continuity within this Constitution that has supported. There are other, uh, there are other elements I can discuss later. But that is a crucial element of continuity from the Tsarist to the Soviet to the post-Soviet period, where you have this notion of state power. And it is always unified, single, and absolute. And so the fact that it's grouped with kind of a separation of powers is really a contradiction. It doesn't make sense from a Russian legal standpoint. And I should add that 11 out of the 12 post-Soviet constitutions, with the, uh, not including the Baltic states, 
11 out of the 12 post-Soviet constitutions have essentially the same formulation of separation of powers. It begins with the notion of state power and then is divided. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question, getting uh, into much more recent times. Uh, and this is one that seems like a huge aberration from the story you've been telling us, and that is the European Court of Human Rights. The fact that Russia is a signatory and Russian citizens bring suits against Russia through the European Court, and Russia abides by the decisions. So what's all that about? Well, yes, Russia joined the Council of Europe in 1998 and became subject to European court decisions in the early uh, 2000s. It has, been, it has facilitated a, an important transformation of the Russian legal system because it has given Russian citizens an, an alternative venue to appeal to when they view their human rights have been violated. And they do so with high regularity. Uh, I believe, yet again, this year, Russia is, if not as first, but in, always in the top three in number of citizens of complaints before the uh, European Court of Human Rights. The, the other fascinating aspect of European court decisions is that they essentially become part of the Russian legal system. So Russia has this clause in the Constitution, Article 15.4, which says, generally recognized principles and norms, principles and norms of international law shall be an integral part of the Russian legal system. Um, I'm, uh, I have a colleague of mine who's trying to figure out who put that provision in the Constitution, and no one quite knows yet. But it, it, it was a remarkable revolutionary clause because it not only allowed people to appeal to Strasbourg and the European Court, but it essentially allowed decisions of Strasbourg to enter into the Russian legal system. So you have this kind of uh, uh, incongruity that the Russian Constitutional Court and other Russian high courts, including the Supreme Court, regularly now refer to European court decisions when making their own recommendations and verdicts. So that it has de facto become a system of precedent that is cited by Russian judicial institutions and provides additional support for the civil liberties that are in the Constitution that unfortunately are not strongly enforced under Russian law. So, so the, the decision to join the European court um, and to essentially recognize a, a, a foreign source of law in the Russian Federation has had a very dramatic impact on the Russian legal system. And Russia regularly loses courts decisions in Strasbourg. And if, 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 if a monetary fine is, is required for them to pay, they, they normally pay it. Uh, there have been other decisions that have asked for kind of structural reforms of the, uh, of the Russian legal system in terms of preliminary detention and their prison system and so forth. They have a very poor record of implementing those decisions. But nevertheless, European law uh, and the European court decision have entered into Russian law. Uh, but there's, as usual, there's a, there's, there's a contradiction and that, that needs to be raised. And that is a couple of years ago, uh, in, in, a, in a couple of cases, uh, essentially 
the European Court overturned sensitive decisions made by the Russian Constitutional Court or sensitive issues of Russian law. And therefore, in 2015, uh, the Duma and, uh, passed a law which says essentially that if, um, that if a European Court decision violates the Russian Constitution, Russia does not have to implement that decision. Uh, that is, Russia is the only country that is so open about its desire to not enforce European court decisions. I'm sure that other countries go a long way not to try to enforce them, but aren't so declarative about their intentions. Um, and now the Constitutional Court has twice chosen not to implement uh, European court decisions. One, one dealing with prisoners' rights to vote, um, which, which again, other countries have also debated within the European Union. But the second one was the $1.9 billion award to the UCOS shareholders, which Russia has decided not to pay. Still, it does seem kind of counterintuitive that they still remain part of the court and that they still abide by the majority of its decisions. Yes. Um, so it, 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 the, the other issue in front of uh, facing Russia is that it's currently not paying its fees to the European Court because it has been suspended from, I think, the Council of Europe. And so there is a question whether Russia still gets to enjoy uh, the, the rights to seek adjudication in, the, in Strasbourg if they're unwilling to pay their fees. But I can assure you this, this, this notion of, of allowing international law, foreign law, to enter the Russian legal system is a dramatic departure from the past for the Soviet Union, from the Soviet Union. And I should also add that uh, I, I believe that the United States would never be so generous as mm. to think that uh, foreign court decisions could simply enter into uh, U US law. Speaking of departures from the norm, uh, Chechnya, this seems like a major aberration from the concept of a unitary state, or maybe it's just a throwback to pre-Soviet uh, imperial times in which the Kremlin's attitude toward the provinces was live and let live uh, as long as um, it's not too disruptive. How do, you, how do you explain? Well, first of all, what's, what's going on in Chechnya legally that might strike an observer as weird? And then how do you ex explain how that works? Yes, you, 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 you've already highlighted what, what is my argument. But um, I mean, Chechnya is, is ruled by Roman Kadyrov. He has basically said, don't, uh, don't bring your Russian laws into my region. Uh, he's been especially harsh uh, for human rights and civil liberties in Chechnya. Um, and it's unclear to, to even to what extent Russian law extends to Chechnya. There are people who have said it, it, it simply doesn't function. You're right, that sounds like a contradiction. I would argue that's simply a revival of historically what has been the unified state. That uh, as long as Mr. Kadir says he'll be a part of the Russian Federation, that he's not going to secede, uh, that he'll support Mr. Putin. Putin doesn't have the resources to go change the situation. Kadyrov provides some elements of security and stability in the region. So it is simply a reassertion of old 18th century pluralistic notions of Russian law that what we see as a, a contradiction that we could never let stand um, is something that is inherent in how Russia has governed uh, this empire for 300 years. 
So now that we've kind of come full circle, uh, this is probably a good time to uh, open up the floor um, to see if, if other people have questions. Everything is fair game. Do you, go ahead. You can no, no, handle this. No, I, I, uh, we'll start right here. All right. My question had to do with the 1977 Consti Soviet Constitution, the Brezhnev uh, Constitution. Um, I'd like to make it a two-part question, but I'll settle for the first part. Uh, at the end of the Gorbachev period, when they were uh, uh, holding a referendum on a new uh, union treaty uh, and uh, heading toward a what strikes me as a revision of the Soviet Constitution, uh, I never understood why all the references were to the Union Treaty of 1922 uh, rather than to the 1977 Constitution, which guaranteed the uh, legal right of every Union Republic to withdraw from the Soviet Union if it uh, chose to do so. That that was. Uh, in the, the first uh, chapter, the second chapter of the uh, 1977 Constitution. So the general question is, why wasn't the Constitution in effect after 1977 the document that the people were arguing about, but I don't understand that constitutional debate. And related to that, in chapter five, the um, 1977 Constitution, um, it's talking about, uh, it's titled the Defense of the Socialist Fatherland. Um, and uh, in, in that uh, Article 5 of the Soviet Constitution, uh, it is not specifically said that the USSR is the socialist fatherland. In 1978, every single Union Republic adopted its own constitution and had an equivalent uh, Article 5, it wasn't always Article 5, uh, but let's say in the case of Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, that Article 5, uh, never, in all of these Union Republic constitutions, never made clear what the socialist fatherland was. Was it Kyrgyzstan? Uh, was it the Soviet Union? Or was it something even, even larger? But that's the second question you may not want to answer. But I'll, I'll, I'll... I'm going to go for both of them. Okay. I'll give them a shot. So why refer to the Union Treaty? as opposed to the right of secession in the 1977 and in the 1936 Constitution. In part, for most of the Soviet period, there is no law on secession. So there is no law in order to how, how, how you actually proceed with this process. And so as Gorbachev's reforms are beginning to unravel in 1988 and 89, he now has to deal with this issue. So he comes up with a law of secession. And he basically says, you know, if, 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 if you want to secede, uh, you have to wait five years, and then we'll start negotiating with you. I mean, he, he creates a very convoluted process as to how secession could occur under this law. And in the result, it satisfies no one and is ignored by everybody. And it reflects the problem that Gorbachev faced kind of 1988-89 onwards, is that no one's listening to them. And, 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 and the regions aren't observing these Soviet federal laws. Um, and so 
he, he, so, so he has to extend all this political capital to, to try to answer the question of how one secedes from the Soviet Union. But it doesn't satisfy anyone's criteria, and they ignore it. And so they refer to the, so no one talks about the Union Treaty. The Union Treaty is absolutely obscure. So the Union Treaty is, this, is, the, is, the, is the legal document, however, that was signed in 1922 that essentially created the Soviet Union. Only four republics, though. I, I, I'm getting to that, okay. yes. So, so yes, it is four republics, uh, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, and something called the Transcaucasian Republic, which was, I think, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Armenia, but not Central Asia. And so, um, and then this Union Treaty, and so, so the question is, the interesting thing about the Union Treaty of 1922 is that the signers of that treaty, with the exception of the Transcaucasian part, but even then, are, are, are still relative, are still displaying remarkable degrees of independence. So Ukraine shows up to the uh, Versailles Treaty as an independent nation. It signs its, it, an agreement with Austria just before, uh, it's this Brest-Litovsk. I think it's Brest-Litovsk they show up to. Okay. And they sign a treaty with Austria just before the whole thing collapses. Um, Belarus is negotiating with Poland. I think Georgia's negotiating with Turkey. I mean, there are elements of independence still when they come together to sign this 1922 Union Treaty. And the Union Treaty creates the Soviet Union. Um, and everyone forgets about the Union Treaty because in 20, 1924 they create the first Soviet Constitution, which again tries to to define how the, the relationship between the, the center and the regions, um, uh, and, and, and explains how countries and regions can join the Soviet Union. And the, treaty, the, the, the Union Treaty is forgotten um, until it's remembered. And it's remembered when three guys get together in a forest in Belarus, and I think over a heavy night drinking, um, and they try to figure, they just happen to be the elected, well, two presidents, the president of Russia, the president of Ukraine, and I forget what Shushkevich's title was. I don't, he wasn't technically president, but he was the leader of Belarus. And they decide um, that they want to end the Soviet Union. And they turn to the 1922 Union Treaty, and they dissolve the Soviet Union. Now, you would think that's not possible, but that's exactly what happened, because Gorbachev had lost so much credibility and had so miscalculated the imperial makeup of the Soviet Union that three gentlemen in the middle of Belarus could end the Soviet Union, and there was nothing he could do about it. Um, a quick silo on that. The notion of treaties and how they form the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and the Russian Federation are critical because they're all based on treaties. The Union Treaty, and then in 1992, the Federation Treaty, and then finally all the bilateral treaties that Yeltsin signs with the regions. It is, again, an element of continuity within Russian law. It's what serves as the, as, as what creates this unity, is this treaty process. Uh, the, the, but the reality is, it may form the nation, but the central authorities try to, and the Russians essentially try to dismiss them as fast as possible. But they're there. They're, it's, it's, it's in the Russian constitution today. And I assure you that if at some future point in Russian history, they again face the potential collapse of the state, 
they will return to the mechanisms within the 1993 Constitution, if it's still working then, to try to forge agreements to keep the state together. Um, but I do want to get to the second question, and that was the notion of, 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 of separate constitutions within the Russian within the Soviet Union. In regard to something that was called the socialist fatherland. Right, so, so, the, the, so what I'll emphasize is yes, the, 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 Soviet, the 1977 constitution allows for each republic to have its own constitution. And they all have their own constitutions. They have their own civil codes and commercial codes, um, criminal codes, fam uh, uh, family law, etc. Um, and so they have all these trappings of statehood, of course, but it's, it's a fiction because it's the party that controls everything. Uh, lo and behold, 1990, the party disappears, and all of a sudden, all these regions have the right to pass their own laws under their own constitutions. They all become living constitutions. I don't think it was anyone's, I don't think this, the Soviet Union never anticipated, and I think Brezhnev and Gorbachev never anticipated that these treaties and these constitutions would serve as a vehicle for, um, for, for, for the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I think that, I mean, there are other people who have written about the Soviet Union as an incubator of nations, uh, Francine Hirsch and, uh, and others. But I think the, the question of endowing each republic with its own legal system and the right of secession is an, an absolutely unintended uh, uh, result and one that Putin's still angry about. I think there's a question. I think Lucas uh, had said it before. Uh, I said thank you very much for the interesting talk. I wanted to come back to a more uh, current topic that you already touched upon, the uh, Council of Europe and the European um, Court of Human Rights. Uh, as you already mentioned, Russia is sort of on the verge of uh, leaving, um, or at least threatening to leave, uh, because their voting rights in the uh, Council's parliamentary assembly have been revoked as a reaction to uh, um, the annexation of Crimea. But as you also explained, the court does have some legal leverage over Russia. And I think the um, track record of the uh, court ruling implementation is not phenomenal, but I think it's still 30%, if I'm not mistaken. So it's, it's definitely not bad. Would you say um, maybe um, give Russia back its voting rights or stay in principle and um, actually continue to pass that it's, uh, that it's all right now? Well, I, I think that's going to be up to the Europeans to decide exactly how, how to resolve the question about uh, suspension of Russia from Council of Europe and whether they want to give them a pass in terms of not paying their fees. Um, the rationale when Russia entered the Council of Europe and the European Court was that it was better to kind of be at the bottom looking up than on the outside looking in that it would better that, that it would have potential positive consequences to integrate Russia into this institution, even though from a technical legal standpoint, it wasn't really ready to join the Council of Europe or, the, or be subject to the European Court. Um, I assume that they will make that same calculation. Um, I don't think that they would dismiss Russia because of the two decisions that have gone against the European Court. As I mentioned before, uh, the British fought uh, uh, voting rights for prisoners for decades. Uh, they didn't want the IRA and prison members to be voting either. So that's, that's a long-standing dispute that, um, that can be tinkered with and resolved. Uh, 
what, what they do about the Yukos decision, I don't know. Um, but I imagine if, it's, if, if Yukos remains kind of a one-off, then there might be a way to see uh, Russia remain in the, in the European, uh, subject to the European court. Yes, yes. So I have a question. If traditionally with Imperial and then Soviet and then current uh, Russian law, there's always this concept of the absolute state. Ultimately, like even if you have autonomy within regions, um, even if in 93 you had civil, uh, a more separation of legal where you have sort of a more balanced system, civil liberties, things like that. If always it comes down to the, the state having the ultimate decision-making authority, how do you, or how does the Russian, the average person, or sort of the way that sort of political culture, how people orient and think of law in Russia, how does this impact how they're, how Russia's able I guess, to maybe what you were referring to in terms of modernization or in terms of development, if you're always trust, not trusting that you actually have any rights within that, because ultimately the state will always have the, the final decision, how does that impact your trust of law in general? Again, it, it's, it's a complicated answer, because what you've seen in the post-Soviet period is despite all the uh, perceptions of what is wrong with the Russian legal system, you have seen the demand for law and willingness of Russians to go to court, if only to resolve low-level disputes or commercial disputes, uh, increase. So you've had, uh, and Professor Catherine Henley has written extensively about this, really a dramatic increase in the use of everyday law, where Russians kind of weigh the cost-benefit analysis. Can they settle first? Do they have to go to court? If they go to court, do they hire a lawyer? You know, th th that's all part of the equation now. Um, and the perception is that if you go to a justice of the peace courts for court judge for a low-level dispute, the judge will be fairly independent. It's not a political case, and they, they have certain pressures that they have to respond to in terms of moving the docket along. But the perception is that it's reasonably fair. Um, you also have, since the end of the Soviet Union, the creation of the commercial courts. Uh, and they've also seen a dramatic increase in the number of people and corporations who are willing to appeal to the commercial courts to resolve their contractual disputes among the businesses. So on a certain level, you have a growing use of law. And, and, it's, and that can begin to change perceptions of law. And it's hard to measure whether that is changing perceptions. But the fact that people use that, those, those venues suggests that people's attitude towards law are, are changing. The reverse side of that is Russian criminal law, which, as I mentioned, you have a 99.6% chance of being convicted. And you also have a politicization of, of cases with, involving major political opponents. You have perceptions of. Um, of corruption cases that are simply kind of settling internal disputes but don't have anything to do within the elites, but has nothing to do with actual fighting corruption or, or trying to, to resolve those types of cases. So you have a very mixed attitude towards law. And the surveys will kind of immediately highlight the, the distrust towards law. 
But that is belied by a willingness of people uh, to use the courts in civil and commercial matters. So I, I think the, 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 there isn't kind of an overriding faith in the, the legal system as a, as a true independent branch of, 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 of social mediation. Uh, there is a recognition of how law is used still politically to, to further political objectives. But at the same time, the law is, even post-Soviet law has some evolutionary potential that hasn't been kind of uh, undermined by all of Putin's reforms. I should add that Putin's reforms since 2012 have made a, a, another important dent undermining trust in the legal system with his law on NGOs, undesirables, against the, the gay community. There's, there's now a long list. Um, and none of that can really foster um, faith in the legal system. One of the arguments that I, I emphasize in the book is a distinction that is common in continental legal systems, but not in common law system. And that is the, the, the distinction between uh, public law and private law. So private law would be property rights, uh, torts, contracts, et cetera. And public law is simply the, the, the pronouncements of, of, the, of the state. And in, in kind of Western Europe, there's always been an interaction between these two branches of law where private law kind of restrains the state. But that has never been the case in Russia from Peter the Great onwards. And so the ability of these private law principles to change and to alter the public law powers of the state are still limited. And that kind of explains why, despite articulating all these improvements, there still probably is this, there still is this underlying distrust toward the legal system. Ben. Yeah, I wanted to go back to uh, the beginning of your talking to Sikorsky and um, Right, you, this notion that in the Tsarist period there was a great distrust of law, right? And we talked about Lenin, but I think that's what Kistikovsky is saying. He's talking about other members of the intelligence, but yes. Well, well, yeah. Yeah, yes. Of course. Uh, so you have uh, this limited faith in the law, uh, and I'm wondering about the, 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 the intelligentsia and the ability to oppose law to the state. Uh, because then you fast forward to the 1960s and 70s. Um, and you have a, a dissident movement that embraces the rule of law, right, and publishes uh, court uh, proceedings, which they then ship to the West and, and, and all of that. So how do you explain that? There seems to be a shift where, uh, where um, legalism, I guess you could say, becomes a major strategy of opposition to the Soviet state, uh, where it maybe served that role in the Tsarist period, but there was also this very divided, maybe, opinion about uh, law uh, as well. Yes, yeah, so, so Kistikowski argues in his, in his essay that kind of the, the intelligentsia has this kind of, is openly hostile to principles of, of law and kind of the, the restraints that law can make on the individual and on the state and is overly concerned with social issues so that social issues essentially trump um, the need for legal protections and civil liberties. Now, I, I wouldn't say that the intelligentsia, broadly speaking, is against that, or is against Kistiakovsky. 
because I think the legal profession itself is a part of the intelligentsia. And they are, of course, always advocating for the importance of individual rights and civil liberties and social rights as well. I mean, they, the, the, the political lawyers that emerged in the early 20th century are, 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 are much more kind of socially oriented than the nice traditional liberals who first emerged in the 1860s, 70s in, in the bar. So I, I think there develops the left-wing intelligentsia that is hostile to property rights, unconcerned about civil law. And Kisikoff emphasizes that in, in, in Vieki that if, if, if he says something to the effect that if the intelligentsia was concerned, actually showed an interest in civil law, they could actually make tremendous strides in kind of the legal advancement and the social advancement of, of the working class and, 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 Rus and the Russian legal system. So I, I wouldn't necessarily exclude lawyers and, and the people who, who, who seek lawyers, you know, business people, merchants, doctors, you know, all, all, all of civil society, as it were, is seeking out these lawyers. And you have to remember that the kind of the first, before, before we kind of transform civil society into uh, NGOs and kind of fighting for non-governmental organizations, civil law is a crucial part of civil society. And so I think that the, no, no doubt the left-wing intelligentsia is not interested in property rights, and 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 that and that and that partially explains why property rights don't become a civil right, or isn't included in notions of civil rights in Tsarist Russia. There is this great essay by Richard Wortman where he says that you know he looks at why a notion of of property rights, which of course is an essential civil right in in, under British and American law, why doesn't it become an essential civil right in, amongst the Russian intelligentsia? Part of that is because of how property had been divided previously. So the dissident movement, yes, it does become, it does seize this notion of, of civil rights. Um, and it does try to use the Soviet courts uh, as a means by which to advocate for them. Um, I think what's important to understand about, so one of the distinctions between Tsarist and Soviet law is at some point, sometimes uh, defendants got acquitted in the, under Tsarist law. If you look at the two great cases, the Bayless case in 1913 and the Zasulich case in 1878, the bookends of, of Tsarist law, both are acquitted. That doesn't occur in the Soviet system. Um, but they do try to make a constant, they do try to demand that the civil rights articulated in the Soviet Constitution um, are enforced. But the debate illuminates what is one of the critical deficiencies of the Soviet legal system, and that is no court is empowered to interpret what the rights are under the Soviet Constitution. So if you want to understand what the Bill of Rights mean, well, you can read hundreds and hundreds of Supreme Court decisions to try to figure out what it means. But there was no judicial precedent. There was no court that was empowered to interpret those rights under Soviet law. And again, that essentially makes Soviet law a dead letter. And it catches up to the Soviet Union when it tries to reform in the late 1980s.
Back to the question of the development of commercial law. Uh, you talked a bit about, uh, or referenced the, at the uh, beginning of the NEP, uh, the legal framework going back to the Tsarist era. As we move into the Stalinist period, we see the establishment of state arbitration, gross arbitrage in 1931. Um, what uh, elements of drawing upon the Tsarist period or, or the pre-communist the pre period uh, do you see uh, having been utilized in the development, if any, uh, in ghost arbitrage, or as that system developed over time, and then what legacies of any do you see of the ghost arbitrage system having in the subsequent uh, arbitrage courts? I haven't uh, looked at the question of what, if the ghost arbitrage courts, to what extent they followed Tsarist commercial experience. The Tsarist legal system had a very developed system of commercial courts. Uh, that regularly arbitrated commercial disputes amongst merchants. Um, they were primarily, um, they, they were, in the true sense, they were arbitration as opposed to legal verdicts because they tried to find ways to which to have the, the merchants and the litigants come to some sort of agreement um, over their disputes. To what extent they relied on those existing kind of the commercial courts or the 19th, 1836 commercial law, I don't know. Um, clearly, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the state arbitrage system, uh, which arbitrates disputes between state corporations, but has limited powers to actually either enforce contracts or to demand specific performance of a contract, is not appropriate in a free market economy. And so there's a rapid transition from state arbitrage to commercial courts. And for the first, until, this, until 2014, the commercial courts in the post-Soviet period are the most advanced and most progressive courts in Russia. Uh, they, um, they have clearer rules. They don't have the multiple levels of, of supervisory appeal. They actually begin to publish all kind of ex parte communications to kind of shame people who are trying to have backdoor access to judges. And at the end, they begin even trying to claim the right of precedent of actually law creation. And I argue that the decision to actually begin issuing precedent for the commercial courts is the reason why Putin decides he has to get rid of, or one of the reasons why. Because the, the, as in other civil law countries, Supreme Courts are, are, are not, are, are not, do not create law. They do not, they not have the right of precedent. And now if, if you have a long discussion between common law lawyers and civil law lawyers, you'll find, well, they kind of do make precedents, but it's not as open and, and, and as obvious that they provide guidance. Lawyers know they have to follow decisions anyway, so, so there is way by which civil law lawyers, civil law courts introduce precedent. But the, 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 the assertion of the right of precedent by the commercial court, I think, was a step too far for Putin. Uh, and, and he feared what a, how, how that could be interpreted by other branches, other parts of the judiciary. And therefore, he decided to get rid of the commercial court. 
Yeah. Uh, I was wondering in terms of uh, foreign influences, you mentioned the European Court of Human Rights, of course, with so much business de facto being done in uh, you know, Cyprus bank accounts, uh, unending lawsuits in London. I wonder, have foreign non-Russian judicial decisions de facto, or despite the mere existence of these courts, had an impact on practice within Russia? Well, obviously, the way it has had an impact is that if you're a commercial lawyer, and you're doing a deal in Russia, uh, the last place you want to litigate is inside Russia. So you will actually include a provision within a contract that your dispute will not be litigated in Russian courts, but will be litigated in Sweden or in, in London, and will be judged under British law, English law, or Swedish law. So there have been ways to get around uh, the imperfections of the Russian judicial system. And most, most commercial deals would decide to arbitrate outside of Russia. Um, Russia has generally recognized foreign arbitral awards inside Russia, but has also begun to, uh, to limit the use of arbitration and now has actually passed legislation that it has to agree that certain countries' foreign arbitration courts can actually litigate cases involving Russians. So just past week, it approved Hong Kong as yet another place where they can conduct these types of arbitrations. But no, the, the foreign law enters into Russia by means of making sure that you're not subject to Russian law. Now, the exception to that is that if, you, if you're a, a foreign entity with a Russian kind of uh, company, and you don't want to have to worry about litigating abroad, there is the option of going to the commercial courts. And foreign companies and foreign companies have decided to do that inside of Russia. Maybe um, I can ask a question uh, about a, a period we haven't talked about yet, the Medvedev interregnum, which as it recedes into the past, uh, seems to get increasingly neglected, maybe for good reason. Um, so Lenin was a lawyer, but Medvedev was also a lawyer. and. At the time, at least, Medvedev came in with strong ideas about laws, right? So I'm speaking of legal nihilism in Russia. Um, do you see, look, in hindsight, were there things that he did that, if he had been able to stay in power for longer, might have made some kind of substantial changes? Um, were there things, were there concrete accomplishments during that era that, that persisted? or? Um, or can we mostly write that off? Um, I think most people will be writing it off. Um, he did introduce some important reforms. Um, he decriminalized slander, for example, and made it a civil offense, so it wouldn't be a criminal offense. And he introduced other uh, reforms as well. He tried to reform Russian corporate law by removing government bureaucrats from co company boards. Kind of because clearly they couldn't be independent if they were also a member of the government. So there were attempts to, to reform the Russian legal system, and he fancied himself a legal reformer. I think his discussion of legal nihilism went awry, however, and that was because he accused the people, Russian citizens, of being the, of the legal nihilists, um, but he never referred to the state and its legal nihilism. As, as being really the, the source of it, that it's the state that doesn't obey its own laws. It's not the people who try to, to find a way to work around or to mediate between the laws. 
It's the state that's the problem. And so I think while he was, he, he was sincere in trying to identify legal nihilism as, as a problem, um, he kind of misdiagnosed the problem, and then he exaggerated his ability to cure, to cure the problem. Uh, the other thing that went wrong for, if you want to identify an opportunity that was lost, um, I would say it was the Magnitsky affair. Mm. So at the time Magnitsky is tortured and dies in jail, Medvedev is pretty active. And he creates commissions to study it. He's interviewing the prison guards. He's firing uh, prison officials. He's really trying to come down hard on the bureaucracy and the prison system that has resulted in the death of Magnitsky. But then those institutions fight back. And it turns out that Medvedev didn't have the political clout to hold them accountable. To the point that the investigations don't lead to indictments against the, the prison officials and the tax officials who steal the money. Indeed, instead of, instead of indicting the tax officials, they give them awards for their fine embezzlement of $230 million, essentially. And then, in the end, um, they try Magnitsky posthumously as the person who has actually committed the crime. So whereas I think Medvedev was sincere in many ways about trying to, um, to reform the legal system, he simply lacked the power. Uh, and and he, 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 it turned out that he was not in charge of state power. Um, and that's the paradox of the current Russian legal system that I talked about the importance of state power and the assumption that the president is the one that is the institution that, that, that um, is the first to, to implement state power. What the 2008-2012 period showed is in fact that you don't need to be president to control state power. That Putin had control over, still had control of the media, the security services, the democracy, and other institutions. And that if you look forward to 2024 as to what might happen when Putin's second consecutive term ends, um, there is always the potential for a Nazarbayev solution, that he finds a creation of the Security Council of some institution that allows him to control state power, and that the president, in fact, isn't the primary holder of state power anymore. I think that's one of the options that Putin is considering as he faces 2024. Uh, so maybe just to wrap up, um, can you extract a few kind of major bullet points from your, from your book to answer this question? What, from the politicized present and the way the West views Russia, what are we misperceiving about Russia's past? What kinds of, um, what kind, how do we overcome stereotypes about how Russia is today? Uh, and what, what can your book uh, help, how can your book help, us, help inform us about things that go against this narrative about the way that we perceive Russia? That's a good question. Um, I think, what I think it, it tries to show is, is the challenges that, how Russia perceives law and how it uses law to govern a diverse multinational continental space. 
And so that if we think that the primary goal of Russia is to kind of evolve into the rule of law and notions of equality, accountability, transparency, natural law, and so forth, that is still a long way away. And that if we want to understand how Russia understands law and the legal system, we have to understand what, what Russians expect of law, okay? And how, what role it serves to bind this huge state together. And what I argue in the book is the goal that Russia has pursued for centuries is not the rule of law and not the law-based state, but a notion of legality. And legality is not the rule of law. Legality, under the Russian definition, is a notion of law-abidingness, that it is expected that people, citizens, and government bodies will implement and observe the laws. But legality doesn't bind the state. Legality is what is expected, is, is how people should interact with the law, but it still gives the state an element of flexibility to govern this huge continental um, expanse. And so that's true of czars, commissars, and presidents. And so if, if we're looking for magic bullets, if, if we're looking to somehow think that Russia is just kind of waiting to introduce a, a, a more traditional notion of the rule of law, to, to emphasize human rights and separation of powers. That is not the experience that has gotten Russia to where it is today. And I think that as we interact with Russia and we try to understand at least how Russia perceives law, we have to understand this historical legacy Otherwise, we'll have unrealistic expectations as to where Russia is going. Thank you, Will Pomerantz. And if you want to order the book. <laughs> we'll, I'll leave flyers here uh, to order the book at a hefty discount.